Please pray with me. Oh God, our rock and our redeemer, you are our refuge, our hiding place. In Christ, we rest secure in the shadow of your wings. Holy Spirit, cement this truth in our hearts as we look at this passage in Joshua. Give me, your humble servant, your words to teach the glorious truth of your great faithfulness. And give each one of us at least one takeaway that will serve to transform us into the likeness of your beloved Son and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This I ask in his mighty name. Amen. What makes you want to run to a safe place? What causes you to respond that way? In the 1920s, a physiologist named Walter Cannon identified what is called a fight or flight response. This is a physical response to something that is mentally or physically terrifying. Cannon discovered that a chain of rapidly occurring reactions in the human body mobilizes the resources to deal with threatening circumstances. Triggered by a release of hormones, the body is prepared to either stay and fight the threat or run away, take flight to safety. The telltale signs someone is in fight or flight mode include a, an increased heart rate, elevated blood pressure, rapid breathing, dilated pupils, pale or flushed skin, and trembling. You and I may feel like we're having a nervous breakdown, but we are actually activating a God-given response to danger. God has safety measures built right into our DNA. This is beautifully illustrated in Joshua chapters 20 through 22. In this passage, God's faithfulness to his covenant promises is highlighted by his provision for all his covenant people. Joshua chapter 22 verses 43 through 45 encapsulate his faithfulness. Commentator Ralph Davis says that these verses are the grand testimony of Yahweh's faithfulness, the theological heart of the book of Joshua, the jugular vein of the book. The writer uses sledgehammer theology to keep pounding his point home. By emphatic repetition, he pummels Yahweh's fidelity into our senses. In a nutshell, Joshua declares God is faithful to fulfill every single promise he has ever made. Therefore, his people can rest secure. This points us to an important truth re revealed in this passage of Scripture. God's people rest secure in his great faithfulness. That is what we will examine in our two divisions, secure place and sacred place. Our first division is Secure Place, Joshua chapters 20 and 21. Open your Bibles and follow along with me. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. The word refuge means the condition of being safe 
or sheltered from pursuit, danger, or trouble. God, in his mercy, established six cities of refuge for those who committed unintentional manslaughter. To take someone's life, even accidentally, is a serious matter. God clearly wanted to impress upon the Israelites the sanctity of human life. All human life is sacred and must be treated as such. The cities of refuge emphatically underscored this truth. In the ancient world, something called blood revenge was a common practice. When a person was killed, his nearest relative was responsible for avenging his or her death. He was known as the avenger of blood. The Hebrew word goel, translated here as avenger, is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to the act of redemption. In the case of murder, the person now described as an avenger or redeemer of blood was responsible for ensuring that justice was done. If the killer left the city of refuge, the avenger of blood could exact his revenge. God's provision of a place for his people to flee ensured their security in the event they caused the accidental death of another. God's people could rest secure in his great faithfulness. Note that this provision was for manslaughter or accidental death. It did not apply to murder or the intentional taking of a life. God's law was clear regarding murder. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 14, the law of Moses states that anyone who committed a murder was to be put to death. This makes the cities of refuge a vivid demonstration of God's grace for those who accidentally made an horrific mistake. His provision of these safe places ensured that his justice would prevail, not the personal vengeance of the justice of man. Verses 4 through 6, along with Numbers 35, gives detailed instructions for how these cities would function. When someone took flight and fled to a city of refuge, he was first required to stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. No one could arbitrarily enter and remain in a city of refuge. If his claim satisfied the elders, they would admit him or literally gather him into the city and provide him a safe place to live. Verse 5 says that if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand. The city became a refuge against revenge. A full trial by the congregation would later determine the guilt or innocence of the offender. This likely took place in the town where the offense occurred, most often in the manslayer's hometown. If his claim was deemed untrue, he would be denied refuge and eventually end up in the hands of the avenger of blood. But if his claim was judged valid, he would return to and remain in the city of refuge. This was God's just punishment for manslaughter. 
Theologian Trent Butler notes that the city is at the same time refuge and prison. And Old Testament scholar Walt Kaiser says that such is the costliness of destroying human life. Life made in God's image always remains exceedingly sacred. Verse 6 also reveals that the manslayer was required to stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Many scholars believe this taught God's people the principle of substitutionary atonement. The high priest represented the sacrificial system ultimately fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Like Jesus, the high priest's death would count as a substitute for the death penalty earned by the manslayer's sin. There was one major difference. While the manslayer in the city of refuge was innocent of real crime, those for whom Jesus died are guilty, guilty, guilty. We have all fallen short of God's righteous standard. We all deserve death. Instead, we are saved from God's just wrath because our substitute, Jesus, received what we deserve. We are being pursued by an untiring and inescapable avenger called death. There is only one refuge to whom we can flee, Jesus Christ. He alone is our all-sufficient refuge. In him, God's people rest secure. In verses 7 through 9, it lists the names and locations of the cities of refuge. God designated three cities of refuge on each side of the Jordan. Careful study of the geographical location of each city of refuge reveals they were strategically placed to be close and easily accessible for everyone dwelling in the land. If someone is in danger and chooses flight over fight, their flight needs to be short. No place in the land was more than a day's journey from one of these cities. All six of these cities are mentioned again in the next chapter, since they also were Levitical cities. This is because the priest and the Levites were responsible for inspecting the roads and ensuring all obstacles were removed. In ancient Israel, the roads to the cities of refuge were required to be wide, well-maintained, and clearly marked. If rivers needed to be crossed, the people were required to build bridges. If there was a crossroad on the path to a city of refuge, a sign which said Miklot, or refuge, was posted in big Hebrew letters. All this ensured that no one taking flight from danger would miss the city of refuge. In Joshua chapter 21, the allotment of the cities and pasture lands for the Levites are listed. This chapter begins with the Levite leaders coming to Eleazar the priest and Joshua, as well as the tribal leaders, to claim what God had promised them. God's faithfulness is seen in the provision of the Levitical cities. Verse 3 says that by the command of the Lord, the Levites were to be scattered around Israel in 48 cities. 
This allowed them accessibility to minister to the people of Israel. The Levites were set apart by God to encourage, instruct, guide, and comfort God's people. Purposefully scattering them among all the people ensured that none of the 12 tribes would be without vital religious instruction and oversight. In this way, God's people would experience his great faithfulness and rest secure. The priest would live in cities located within the inheritances of the other tribes and were never more than 10 miles away from anybody living anywhere in the promised land. Verses 4 through 42 list the cities given to the descendants of Israel's first high priest, Aaron, who was also Moses' brother. He had three sons from whom these clans were descended, Kohath, Gershon, and Merari. Verses 43 through 45 form the crux of this passage. As I stated early, they are, earlier, they are the heart of the entire book of Joshua. In them, Joshua effectively summarizes the faithfulness of God to keep his covenant promises sworn to Israel's forefathers the wonderful promise of rest on every side. God's people rested secure in his great faithfulness. Verse 45 says, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Faithfulness to his promises secured rest for his wilderness-worn, battle-weary people. This points to the believer's eternal rest. God just as faithfully kept his covenant promises to us regarding our salvation. What a glorious affirmation of God's great faithfulness. You and I know with great clarity what the Old Testament people only knew by promise, by faith, and through the shadows of the sacrificial system put in place by God. We know that Jesus is the Messiah. We know that he died, he lived, died, and was raised to new life to save us from our sin and into new, abundant, and eternal life. He is our refuge the one to whom we can run every time the world is shaking and our souls are quaking. The first truth we learn from this division is that God faithfully provides a safe place for believers to run, Jesus Christ. What do you do when the world shakes and your soul quakes? When your fight or flight response says, take flight. To whom do you fly? Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very help, present help in trouble. What an extravagant promise. When we enter difficult times, God himself promises to be our refuge. When our world is shaken and our souls are quaking, we can trust that God has not failed us and he never, ever will. Some of the Jews suffering 
unimaginable horror during the Holocaust, continued to take refuge in God. This was evidenced on the walls inside of Auschwitz concentration camp, which bore the following inscription. I believe in the sun, even when it's not shining. I believe in love, even when I am alone. I believe in God, even when he is silent. Even in the midst of tragic circumstance, God is still present, even when it is hard to see or perceive him. If those Jews could trust God in their impossible situation, how much more can believers trust in the God who lives in them? God faithfully provides a safe place for believers to run. And that place is a person, Jesus Christ. Never forget that. God secured rest for his people in the land he promised them. This is what we see in our second division. Even as the tribes confront a threat to the sacred place at Shiloh. Our second division is Sacred Place, Joshua chapter 22. This chapter begins with a commendation and a charge from Joshua to the eastern tribes. In verses 1 through 5, Joshua summons these tribes and commends their obedience to all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded them. They had faithfully kept the charge of the Lord their God by fighting alongside their brothers to conquer the land west of the Jordan, or west of their own inheritances. Therefore, God granted them rest, just as he promised. Return to rest in their own land did not, however, mean that they could forget or neglect their obligation to the Lord and to their fellow Israelites. God demands faithfulness in peace and prosperity, as well as in war and danger. Faithfulness should define the people of God because their rest is secured by his great faithfulness. This is why Joshua grants the Lord's rest with a warning wrapped up in a command. Verse 5, only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. You can hear the passion in Joshua's words. Be faithful to the Lord. Be loyal to the Lord. These commands are threaded throughout Deuteronomy as well as Joshua. They are echoed in the exhortation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, where he gives his disciples the first and greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This was not and is not a matter of external conformity, but a command to wholehearted faith. Our motivation is God's faithfulness to all his covenant promises, which culminated in our salvation from sin. 
because God's people rest secure in his great faithfulness, they delight to love, obey, worship, and serve him wholeheartedly. In verses 6 through 9, Joshua blesses the two and a half tribes and sends them back to their land east of the Jordan River. They departed laden with much wealth and very much livestock with silver, gold, bronze, and iron and with much clothing to share with their brothers. Then the narrative takes an unexpected turn because of an unexpected decision made by the eastern tribes. Verses 10 through 12 tell us that the eastern tribes built an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. They gave no explanation to the western tribes for building the altar. When the people of Israel heard about it, they were rightly alarmed. God's commands about how to properly worship him were clear. There was only one altar on which to offer sacrifices to him. And that altar was, at this point in Israel's history, located at Shiloh. So verse 12 says, The whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Theologian Gordon Matty says that the conflict emerges that the conflict emerges in the next episode illustrates the fragility not of the eastern tribe's covenant loyalty but of the bonds formed within the community called Israel as a whole. Not only is covenant with the Lord called into question but the very constitution and identity of Israel are also threatened. In the law of Moses the Israelites were authorized to kill those who rebelled against the proper worship of the Lord. This is why they prepared to go to war against their fellow Israelites. Fortunately, cooler heads prevailed, and they sent a delegation to investigate the offense before going to war. Verses 13 through 14 tell us that the delegation included Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. Phineas was an heroic defender of the faith, especially regarding the proper worship of Yahweh. In Numbers chapter 25, the Israelites began to worship the pagan idol Baal at Peor, this earned them God's just wrath, and a plague broke out which killed 24,000 Israelites. Phineas took decisive, violent action to defend God's holiness and thereby end the devastating plague. The same Phineas is called upon to investigate what looked like a breach of faith by the eastern tribes. He, along with the highest level of leadership in Israel, confront their brothers. In verses 16 through 18, they ask, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we 
not had enough of the sin at Peor from which we have not yet cleansed ourselves or for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord and if you too rebel against the Lord today then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel Phineas quickly recalled the consequences of the rebellion at Peor building an altar to worship the Lord in a place he did not authorize was also an act of idolatry, a breach of faith committed against God himself. And as the rebellion at Peor showed, this breach of faith would not just affect the eastern tribes, it would affect all the Israelites. Their supposed rebellion threatened the entire nation with another outpouring of God's wrath. To underscore this point, they recall what happened to the entire nation of Israel when Achan broke faith after the battle of Jericho. The delegation was rightly concerned about the dire consequences for the entire nation of Israel because of the building of an unauthorized altar. Because of an altar built by a few tribes, all 12 tribes of Israel were threatened by an outpouring of God's wrath. For them, the only refuge from God's wrath was complete obedience to his commands. For us today, refuge from God's wrath is found in the saving work of Jesus Christ he drank the cup of God's wrath for our sins down to the dregs. He died in our place to pay the penalty that we owe. Truly, we rest secure in God's great faithfulness. Our only reasonable response is to remain faithful to him and his commands. Verse 19 demonstrates how seriously the western tribes took the threat to God's holiness. They tell their brothers, but now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our can hear the delegation. They pled, they begged, they tried to turn the eastern tribes from their sin, even offering them land with their, within their own possessions west of the Jordan in the true promised land. Their desire was to restore these tribes to a place where they could remain faithful to their commitment to God. In verses 21 through 29, the eastern tribes respond. They begin by exalting God as the mighty one. God, the Lord, the mighty one. God, the Lord. They acknowledge God as omniscient or all-knowing. He knew their true motive. But they say if he deemed their act an act of rebellion or a breach of faith, then they should not be spared his wrath or the war waged against them by their western brothers. In verse 23, 
They say that if they did indeed build the altar to burn burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. In verses 24 through 28, they finally explained that they built the altar because they feared that one day the children of the western tribes would ask their children, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Concern for the spiritual welfare of their children and future generations caused them to build an altar to serve as a witness that they too were God's people. The eastern tribes were innocent of malice. They never intended to use the altar to offer sacrifices to the Lord God or to any pagan god. It was meant only as a memorial or witness for their children. In the end, their desire was the same as the western tribes, that Israel remain unified and faithful to the Lord. In verse 29, the eastern tribes punctuate their defense by declaring, Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. They affirm that Shiloh was the only sacred place. In verses 30 through 31, Phineas and his delegation respond. What they heard was good in their eyes. They tell the people of the eastern tribes, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. When the delegation returned home with their good report, the people of Israel blessed God and stopped speaking of war. In verse 34, this chapter of Israel's history closes with a climactic declaration of the full meaning of the altar. They called the altar witness, for it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. The altar proclaimed that the Lord our God is one Lord. Only in his great faithfulness did they rest secure. The Israelites were committed to remaining faithful witnesses to the all, almighty power and saving grace of their covenant God. Believers today also rest secure in God's great faithfulness. He has saved them and secured them through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Their only proper response is to live as his faithful witnesses. That gives us our second truth. God faithfully provides believers all they need to live as his faithful witnesses. How has God proven his faithfulness to you? In what ways could you give witness to his almighty power? 
and saving grace. Think about his faithfulness to you. How has he been with you in your fight against sin and evil? How has he been with you in your flight to safety and security? When you and I look back at all God has done in and through our lives, we will see that God has been faithful. When we are called to fight, he is our strength and our song. He has become our salvation. When we are called to take flight, he is the one to whom we run, our rock and our refuge. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Is that your witness? It should be. Commit to being a strong and vocal witness of his great faithfulness. Remember, God faithfully provides believers all they need to live as his faithful witnesses. What makes you want to run to a safe place? Is it your own besetting sin? Is it the overwhelming depravity of our world? Or is it Satan, the destroyer of our souls? Whatever it is, take flight, run to Jesus. He is your refuge. He alone provides the refuge you need. He alone saves us from the wrath of God our sin earns us, the temptations of this fallen world, and the ultimate enemy, death. In his great faithfulness alone, we rest secure. Therefore, whether we respond to the stressors in our lives by standing to fight or by taking flight, Jesus is a safe place, a refuge. Is he yours? Have you been saved by God by grace through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Is eternal life your safe and secure possession? And can you truly say, God is my refuge? If you answered no to any of those questions, stop fighting God and take flight Run to Jesus. His arms are open wide. His mercy flows like a river. His grace knows no bounds. And his greatest desire is for you to rest completely in him. God's people rest secure in his great faithfulness now and through eternity. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you are almighty, and you are so, so faithful. Because you are our fortress, we rest secure. Because we are your treasured possession, you surround us and watch over us. We can take comfort and are encouraged. We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper in time of need. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Thank you, Father, for that amazing assurance. Help us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to exalt your holy name and to live as strong witnesses to your great faithfulness. 
This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.